0: Shalom and welcome to another in-hour series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Halakha 101 class taught by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. So we are going to, today, there are going to be two say, theme, two last little pieces of Toyvelin. So I lied a little bit in saying that we were done with it. There are just two little pieces. And then we're going to go straight into um in your kitchen, which most of you probably know because of Passover <laughs> um, and because that's the time where we go through all these different Um, laws and stringencies and how to do it perfectly, um, you know, what what, around Passover, because that's kind of the heightened time of koshering. But in fact, the laws—if you know the laws of koshering for Passover—every other time of the year, they're exactly the same um, and a little bit more lenient because during the rest of the year, you don't have to worry about chametz specifically. Um, you are just worried about whether or not something is kosher for use. So, just to, just as a reminder, toivolin is the act of immersing something in in a a body of water to make sure that it is now in the category of use but it does not kosher the item. So if a pot, for example, was used for a beef stew and somehow you forgot and then used it to make macaroni and cheese, you don't toivel it, you kosher it. So you wouldn't take that item to a mikvah, you would just do what we're about to discuss today, which is kosher it in your, in your home um, or in a place where you can kosher if you're not doing it at your home. Where people get confused about these two things and, and bring the ideas of toiveling and, uh, and koshering together is actually around Passover, because very, especially for those of us who have lived in Israel before, when you live in Israel, around the time of Passover, there are these very large vats of water that kind of look like the same vats that you might see when you're toivaling an item. And you can take your items to those big vats and kosher them for Passover. It's different, though, because that's just that's just a way, especially in Israel, though it also happens here in specifically kind of the, the Hancock Park, Fairfax area and probably a little bit of Pico Robertson, though I've never noticed it. Um where you can go to these vats and and kosher your items for Passover. The reason they're doing that is just for convenience, but it's different than toy volume. So that's where those two things get confused in people's minds. And one of the things that we're going to talk about in just a moment is that there are multiple ways of koshering items. Dipping in water, or I should say submerging in water, is not the only one. So there are certain things for which taking a vessel and putting it in a large body of water can be koshering, but there are certain ways in which... The, the item needs to be used with fire or some other way of koshering um, or no koshering at all that that would not be um, fit for use with just water. So we're going to get into all those specifics. I just wanted to make the distinctions very clear between the two before we move from one into the other. Um, Leon, did you have a question?
1: No, I just wanted to tell you that at Temple Betham, we used to do that on Pesach. Yeah. We had yeah. these huge things. I know because I took part in preparing and doing some of that
0: yeah we we I think we didn't do it my first year because it was already COVID but I remember when I was an intern um it was it was definitely available and you know as soon as COVID will allow us to do those kinds of things we'll do them again um but again that's that is purely for people's convenience especially if they don't have big enough pots at home to be able to to their items and and whatever um so we share my screen, we're gonna finish th- these last, I think it's two say theme of toivaline very quickly, just to say that we we actually got through the whole thing, and then we're gonna move on um, to this next piece of actual costuring. So okay, so this is where we left off. Um, so one may not rely on a child. It says Minim Katan So you can't have a little kid go to the corner or go to this um to this body of water and have them toivel your dishes. But the rama, the gloss says but if a child um is actually doing the action but there's an adult there, it's considered dunking. So the child can be the one actually doing it as long as there's an adult to say, yes, it was done properly. The, the reason for this is pretty self-explanatory. Kids just don't always know how to follow these rules yet because they're kids. <laughs> and when we say kids in a lawful sense, we just mean under the age of bar bat, mitzvah. So, you know, we're we're talking little kids here that don't necessarily know these laws and really would have no need to know these laws yet. So, but if a kid goes with a parent and the kid is helping out, as long as a parent can see what's going on, that's totally fine. Uh so, uh, mm, mm, hold on. Okay. Um, so this is saying if a person puts, you know, does the toiveling alongside someone who is an idol worshiper, it is dunking. It is toiveling, Um, but you're not allowed to believe this idol worshiper regarding the dunking. So unlike a child, right, you can be next to someone who is an idol worshiper. I have absolutely no idea why the person would be Toivoli if they didn't believe in Toivoli. Um, but let's say they were there. If you, if you dunk your vessel alongside them, it's not as if they're going to bless or, you know, somehow, um, mess up, so to speak, the toyveline that you are doing. But unlike a child, you cannot have them do the toyveline for you. Because again, it's not something they believe in. And therefore, it wouldn't be regarded as, um as for their sake. And therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't work for them to do the toiveling for you. So back in the time of the Shulchan Aruch, you couldn't send someone who works for you, like someone who we might call in today's day, like, a nanny or a a housekeeper, again, who's just not Jewish, not necessarily an idol worshiper, to go and do this for you because it has to be for their sake. Um, Okay, Michael and then Norm or Rachel.
2: I assume that the reason that a child under supervision can only dunk and not do everything else that's required is because as a child, not being obligated uh, they can't say the bracha and have it be effective, perhaps.
0: Correct. Uh, yeah. That, that is definitely kind of the second, the second tier to the complication that would be if a child did the toy The first tier is just, they might not know how to do it. <laughs> um, but yes, the ritual implication would be that it would not be a bracha. It would be a bracha levatala. It would be a bracha that for them means nothing. Um, and that it needs to mean something if you're doing it for, for those ritual reasons. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Norm.
2: I thought it was related to that, that. It's a servant. It's one thing to have your servant go off to Aram to find a wife for your son, but you wouldn't want to rely on him to be dunking your vessels. Um, and you and his testimony might not be accepted in court if, if there was ever a reason why it would come up as an issue in that way. And so that's why a child needs to have an adult along with him or her so that there's somebody who can testify that it was done properly and likewise the presence of an idolater at the dunking place is not a problem um, but the the idolater isn't the one who does the dunking and testifies about it.
0: Yeah, correct, exactly that's exactly right <clears throat> um, a lot of it has to do with just how you would as I was just saying to Michael, like a lot of it has to do with kind of the intention behind it so if there's if if you are if you are doing something that you wouldn't even be able to testify as to why you were doing it, then there's then you don't have any obligation to actually do it. And so that would be a reason to not have that person do it at all. But also if you were gonna have them, if you were gonna have them help in the, you know, the the participation of it, um, that would be it, it would be one thing for that to be a child and another thing for it to be someone who just doesn't believe in it at all. Again, going back to what Michael said in terms of the bracha as well, right? An idolater shouldn't be saying a blessing that's our blessing and not their blessing. Um, Okay, let's go to this last one. Last? Great. Okay. Um, Let's move you all so I can see it. So, I'll give you one. So, I don't read the rest. So if a person forgot, um, and they didn't take their vessel to this body of water to toyville it, um, from the eve of Shabbat, which means Friday. It doesn't just mean Friday night or the eve of a holiday. So the day that you're in preparation for the holiday, you can give it to someone who doesn't, who's an idol worshiper, someone who, who, um, will not use it in the same way as a gift. And then you can take it back from him and you can use it. So this actually is very akin to kind of the legal fallacy of chametz on Passover, right? You sell it to someone so it's no longer yours, and then you get it back at the end. So this is a similar um, a similar, similar, legal fallacy that you would be able to give it to somebody so that then they can use it. But then when you get it back, you have the time to actually toivel it and, and um, get it ready for use. The Ramah says, and this is how it's done even on a regular day in a place where there is no mikvah. And if one mistakenly uses the vessel without dunking, the food he used it for is not forbidden and he shall dunk it thereafter. Meaning if he just forgot to toibble it and then he drinks, I don't know, coffee out of the cup or well, before the drink, <laughs> he pours coffee in the cup. You Can still drink the coffee, you just take it to Toivol afterwards. So, the Ramah is being a little bit more lenient here. The Ashkenazi opinion is a little bit more lenient here than the Sephardic opinion. Um, that even if it's not Shabbat or a holiday, even if it's just a random Tuesday and you use the vessel, and you, you maybe you thought your wife had taken it to Toivol or and she didn't, and then you put food in it you can still eat that food um but you you must tovel it after the fact yeah norm or rachel
3: the i i think this may be much more of a pragmatic um approach or gloss than a spiritual one uh-huh. because in poland the rivers froze in the winter And in Spain, they did not. Mm. And so it may be that if you get this new pot, pan, glass, whatever, Mm -hmm. and the place you usually use for dunking is not available Mm -hmm. because it's frozen, Mm -hmm. you kind of get a window of time to wait for the play, for that mikveh to become available
0: that's really fascinating i hadn't thought about that um yeah it it seems like it would be something that you would Um, Based on location, know better when when this might need to be in use for practical reasons than as you were saying, just for spiritual reasons of use of the vessel. Um, It seems like you're still supposed to find relatively soon after that, or at least before you use the vessel again, a way of uh, toiveling it. But it's a very it's a fascinating point. Thank you for thank you for bringing that up. I would not have thought about it uh, geographically. So thank you. Uh, Diane or Larry.
3: So this is just a question. Women yeah. women are allowed to toyville. There's no, like, unlike um, bearing witness or, or um, other things, women are perfectly allowed to do this. Is that right? Yeah. The sources.
0: Yeah. Women are definitely allowed to do it. Um, I would say in, in many cases, women are the ones doing it <laughs> because they're the ones buying the vessels and using the vessels. Um, but yeah, definitely allowed. And in many of these texts, we'll see the male um, gender used because that's the most common um, gender being given these laws. But even if the law is being given kind of for the household and therefore in these times the man uh, a woman is definitely allowed to do, to do this action for sure. Um, doesn't there have to be a mikvah available regardless of whether, at least for people, if not for vessels? Yeah, it's a really good point, Diane or Bob. Um, I, I assume that's in, um, in response to Rachel's question. Yes, I assume so. And Rachel makes a good point that back in the day, even if it was a mikvah. Right. It might have been frozen. Right. Like when we talk about Nita, um, there there are cases in which women were not only were not able to go to a mikvah because of wherever they were living. Um, And if it was, you know, back in the day when mikvahs weren't inside places and they were just outside baths that were collecting rainwater, um, you know, that could be difficult depending on the geography. Yeah, Rachel.
3: The novels that I've read. (laughs) about Jewish life in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Always have this or that being frozen. Mm. And that's why I thought about it. Uh, Norm and I were in Krakow several years ago in the summer.
2: And we went to the Ramon's shul and graveyard and saw his grave. And
3: and so on. Um, But I had the sense that um, these people who'd lived there for centuries, including you know varieties of economic status, um, they had to be prepared for all kinds of weather. Mm-hmm. The weather in that part of the world is not something you can rely on. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, Leon.
1: My, my son moved to Idaho. And guess what? They don't have a mikvah in, uh, uh where he lives. And, uh, they certainly do have frozen water. So it's not just in Eastern Europe. Right, right,
0: right, right. Of course. Yeah, yeah, Earth. right. Yeah, I think, I think Rachel was making the point. of based on location where Yosef Caro was living versus where Moshe Isselis was living. Ah. But of course, yeah,
1: you're, thank you're you. Spot I, on. I, I missed that connection.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're spot on though. In terms of like in today's day, we're not just talking about, you know, Spain and, and, you know, Israel, so to speak, we're, we're really talking about, um, any, any which place that you would be doing these things. So Idaho would be a place. Um, and, I know that they business. collect,
1: the, they collect rainwater and they also co- go to the river.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Cora, don't worry. Tomorrow it'll be warm and it, it's totally fine. <laughs> you won't be going into any frozen lakes. Um, okay. So. We're gonna now move on to Simon 121. Um, we made it to the next Simon, ladies and gentlemen. Good job. Third week into the next Simon. Very exciting. Um, so this is where, th- this is where it turns into the kashrut that you will all undoubtedly know, um, or at least have heard of. So before we get here, I just want to take a little, a, a little detour into a different part of our, uh, a part of our canon. And that is the Talmud. So for those of you who have studied halacha before, you probably know that it doesn't just come out of nowhere. And it definitely doesn't come from the Torah. There are very few laws that are specific in the Torah. However, all of our laws come from the Torah somehow. So they either come from the Torah, but like kashrut is a really um, a really easy one to kind of pinpoint how one basic statement made for many, 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 many laws It just says, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk in the Torah. Well, clearly, those of you who either keep kosher, or who have learned the laws of kashrut, know, including toiveling, right? That's not in the Torah, but all the ways in which the rabbis believed that we had to understand, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk turned into many, 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 many laws. So the Torah is its own body of narrative, of law, of instruction. And then in the 200s came the Mishnah, the Mishnah was written as a way for the rabbis to be able to kind of decipher out those lawful pieces and say, OK, I'm going to understand this idea of do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. And here's here's my understanding of it. And then the Gemara, a few hundred years later, is the the. the um, uh Oh my goodness, what's the word? Is the compilation of rabbis studying these different sections of Mishnah and putting it down on a piece of paper and saying, here's our discussion around that topic. So, what I'm going to show you right now is the Mishnah and the, the Talmud that come out of, sorry, the Mishnah and the Gemara, which together make the Talmud which then come to to be the Shulchan Aruch a few centuries later when we are discussing not just, oh, this is what the rabbis were talking about, but, oh, this is what the law needs to be. So you get Mishnah, then you have the Gemara, the, the conversation on that Mishnaic piece, and then you get Yosef Karo years later saying, Okay, that discussion was really hard to decipher. Here's the law that comes from that from that discussion, and obviously Maimonides is in there, and et cetera, et cetera. It's not it's not just the Shulchan Aruch, but that's kind of the trickle down effect from just the basic law in the Torah. Does so, anybody have any questions about that before I introduce this piece? Okay, all right. So we're going to look at a, a very quick bit of Mishnah and um, and Gemara to then get us into the Shulchan Aruch. Um give me one second, sorry. So we're in a vodasara. We're in a vodasara 75B. A vodasara, which was actually a tractate of um of the Talmud that I did not study in its entirety, um, or not even in its entirety, it, really at all in rabbinical school. But when we talked about Kashrut, we went back to these pages um and looked at it. But Avodazara itself was not um a big part of my study in rabbinical school. There are other pieces of Talmud that, that were, but Avodah Zara was not. So the, the, these four letters right here mean that this is the Mishnah. It also says it in English, but Matniti means that we're looking at a Mishnah here. So it says, I think is how you say that. So if you're looking at the link here, which even if you're listening to the podcast, the link is in the podcast. The the bolded pieces here are the actual words of the Mishnah. And then I'm going to use some of what Steinsaltz added, which are the non-bolded pieces to make it sound like English. Because if I just translate it for the Hebrew and some not Hebrew Some Aramaic, and I'm guessing maybe a little bit of French even, um, words in here. It's just not going to make sense totally. So one who lokeach, one who takes, one who purchases um, utensils, right? Vessels, which we've been talking about before, from a person who is a ovde kochavim, a person who believes in the stars, so an idol worshiper, or as it's being translated here, from the Gentiles must prepare them for use by Jews in the following manner. So you have to toivel them so that you can actually use them. With regard to those utensils whose manner of preparation is to immerse them in a ritual bath, as they require no further preparation, he must immerse them accordingly. With regard to those utensils whose manner of preparation is to purge them with boiling water, as those utensils are used with boiling water, for example, pots, he must purge them accordingly. With regard to those whose manner of preparation is to heat until white hot in the fire, meaning you can't, it's super, super hot, you can't touch it. As they are used for grilling, he must heat them until white hot in the fire. So what it's basically saying here is any way that you use the item is the way that you make the item fit for use, right? So pretty simple. If you use a uh, a pan on your stove, you're not going to dunk that in water because you're not filling a pan with, with liquid. You might with oil, but not liquid that, you know, goes over the sides. You're not, you're not making a soup in a pan. So the way that you deal with that kind of utensil is with fire. Whereas if you are using a pot, you use water, boiling water, because that's usually what's in a pot. Baking pans, um, grill pans, anything like that, that has direct fire on it whether that's heat or actual fire um you you use fire to to expunge them to to make them fit for use so then the gemara goes on to say they all require immersion in 40 say of water so i'm not going to read all of this but this is where we get the shulchan aruf that we've now been learning for the past three weeks that regardless of what what use it is right if you get a new pan you have to dunk it into 40 say uh, of water that does not make it kosher but again that makes it fit for use so everything goes into 40 say uh, of water um and that's just the toy part we're going to get to the kashu part on the next page of yeah title
4: i'm sorry maybe you've been saying this all along and it just sunk in i thought the The translation of kosher means fit or proper for use.
0: So um yeah, I mean, but I think that one is the idea of something that is fit for eating off of, and the other one is like fit to be in your home, right? So toiveline is the idea that it could even be an object used by Jews. Making something kosher is allowing it to be fleish or parv or milkic in its use. Does that make sense? Yeah,
4: except that kosher goes beyond to mezuzah. And when even things like, because it's on my mind based on what you said about what Korah is doing tomorrow, doesn't it get discussed as a kosher dunk or not a kosher dunk if the water? I mean, so yeah, it's
0: just. A, I think we're just. This is just semantics, but I think that that the way in which something like a kosher Torah scroll, right, the way that we talk about anything in Judaism that is able to be used for Jewish ritual is kosher, right? Is is um, is fit for use, but toiveline is is just kind of allowing it into your home to begin with. So if you have some, it's not fit for use when you've toibled it. Um, it, it is fit for food. Right? So it's able to be utilized with food, but it's not necessarily designated for one type of food or another. Koshering something makes it distinguish between, you know, from all the other things in your kitchen. So you have meat plates, you have milk plates, you have meat spoons, you have milk spoons. All of those spoons could have gone into the same mikvah for toivalene. That's not what made them necessarily kosher. It just made them able to be in your home as as items. May I try one more? Sure. Because if you
4: try to make the vessels kosher without toiveling them so in that case this is something that there's a two-step process in that there's a I can't think of the right word but a something you know the math analogies are coming up but you know what I'm saying it's something that a precondition to making it kosher because you can't make it kosher unless
0: you've done this first is that is that correct to say No. So, so anything that you toyable, right? If you, if I buy a pot from Bed Bath & Beyond tomorrow, if it was made in America, I might decide that I don't need to toyable it because I don't believe that it was made in such a way that it might've been used for idol worship. If I bought something in India and I brought it home with me from India, I might decide that I need to toyable it Not because India is a bad place or made by bad people, but because in India, there are certain things being used for spiritual worship that we are not using here in America. Now, I have many friends who toivel anything they buy, even if it's made in America, because their argument to me would be, yeah, but Rebecca, it could have been made by someone who would have said a blessing over it before it went into that packaging. Fair point. So it's not that you have to toivel something to then make it kosher but something that is going to be used with food needs to be toyveld so that it can be used um can be used with with food and then if you need to distinguish it as as meat or milk you then kosher it to make it one of those things if i buy a pot tomorrow and i decide it's going to be meat i don't have to kosher it to be meat It's, it is a blank slate when I purchase it. So when I start using it with beef stew, now that's meat. And then next week, if I decide that, oh no, no, actually I want that pot to be able to make macaroni and cheese, then I kosher it. But the toiveling process is just to bring it out of its state of this was someone else's and now it is mine. Hopefully that made sense. Okay. We're going to go on. Um, to this next page of Gemara, which is where we talk about, um, one of my favorite phrases in koshering, because if you understand this phrase, you will be good to kosher all the things that are kosherable. Um, so this is still Gemara. We're now, we're still in the same section of answering this Mishnah question that we talked about a second ago. Oh, it actually starts over here. Okay. So, I think, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the question that's being asked right now is what does one do with a large kettle, right? So pretty self-explanatory what a kettle is. Um, what about things that cannot be immersed such as a blender or food processor? So we talked about this a little bit, the first class, so a blender, the, um, the, the thing <laughs> that holds the food can be immersed. The non-electric part can be immersed. Um, and similar to a food processor, right? The, the contraption that has the food in it can be immersed. If those things are plastic and cannot be immersed. Um, by the way, a, a mikveh for toy is not hot. So it's not like you're putting something in boiling water. It might be warm, but it's not hot. Um, so it can go, if it can, basically go under a faucet. You can probably toivel it. So most things can be toivel as long as they're not electric. But the question that you have, Norma, Rachel, will come up when it comes to koshering because those things, unless they are made out of a certain substance, might not be able to be koshered, um, but they can be toivel. So so bring it up again when we get there. Um, the Gemara says uh, that there was this occasion to understand this from um, Rav Rav, a cavia, seems a little bit too close to a kiva to be different, but okay, and required purging, right? So he surrounded it with a rim of dough. So around the kettle, he put some kind of dough, whether that's actual dough or just some kind of putty around its rim, and filled it with water and boiled it so that the water boiled along its rim, right? So the water went up to the top so that it could then make everything um, touched by boiling water without it, uh without it probably making too much of a mess rava said who would be clever enough to perform such an action if not rav uh rav akavia as he is a great man so good job dude you knew what to do to make to not make a mess in your house koach. Yeah, sure, he maintains that as it absorbs it so it expels it okay so this is the phrase kevolo kach polto um <laughs> when we were in rabbinical school we liked that it rhymed because it was a very easy thing to remember but kevolo the idea of of bol means to actually vomit really fun fun for everybody to be able to think about so this word right here i'll show you the translations oh nope i won't great hold on one second what Oh, no, definitely. Okay, you're going to have to take my, take my word for it. Um, Leave loa in Hebrew is to... Okay, well, it, it means to vomit. It means to expunge, right? To get rid of something. It actually so, means to
1: swallow. Leave loa means to swallow. swallow. Doesn't mean to vomit.
0: Sorry, sorry. I'm doing it backwards. Thank you. Wow, thank you for catching that. So the way that you take something in, the way that you swallow something is the way that it gets expunged out, right? The way that you... Take something in is the way that it gets taken out. So again, going back to the pan description, if you use a pan for, I don't know, frying or making eggs, you're not, you don't submerge that in anything, right? There's nothing submerging going on in that action of using, of using a pan, but a pot you do fill with liquid and other things. You could people. People in rabbinical, rabbinical school always said, well, how about pasta? Yeah, pa- though it's not, though it's not liquid, it's still a thing going into the pot and filling it. And therefore you need to fill it and have it go over the top. So the Volo part is that you are, are swallowing something in that you're then going to kick out, right? Like vomit out. Um, that you are going to know how to kosher something based on its use. So if you have a fork, for example, you take a fork or a spoon or a knife, those utensils you use by sticking them into something, right? Imagine whatever you ate for dinner or will eat for dinner. You are using your utensils to go into the item. Therefore, you can't just run water over them. You have to make sure that they are submerged into something because they're submerged into the thing when you use them. So forks, knives, spoons, all those things need to go into boiling water to get the, the food, right, the the, um, the ta'am, not literal taste, but like the whether they're milchic or fleshic, you need to get that out by submerging them in something. Renee, I see you, hold on one second. The other piece is if you have something like um, a baking sheet or something like a grill pan that's used directly on heat, you can't submerge that in water to make it something else because that's not how you use it. You need to, many people like to use a blowtorch because that's just fun, but you could also stick it into a very hot oven Get it to a very high heat. And that now is, is it's now koshered. We're going to go through the steps. You can't just like throw something into an oven and say it's koshered. You have to clean it and do this that, and the other thing. But it's a, it's a very important principle to remember and makes life easier if you understand, oh, I'm going to kosher the thing the way that I use the thing. And this goes for Passover. That goes, this goes for Wednesday evening. This is the same for both. So it's not a stringency versus leniency thing. It's just how you kosher. You just kosher the way that you use something is the way that you, that you create it into something else. Okay. Renee.
4: So, when I was growing up, if we would make a mistake let's with a with a not with a di- with dish but with a um, utensil, or, yeah, a fork or a spoon or whatever, then we would have to first put it in dirt dirt, yeah before we would put it immerse
3: it in the
0: well, yeah, wash I think it that that's just. The- I think it's just an extra step. I've never been able to really figure out why the dirt thing came along, except for that it is immersive, right? It's go, it is going into something neutral. Um, but I think that that has much more to do with the fact that they that people back in the day didn't necessarily not back in your day, but just back in the day from the people who were teaching this to you um, <laughs> potentially didn't have you know dishwashers and multiple sets of things, and so to to make something neutral you would then set it aside and set it aside in such a way that it was you know uh, being cleansed though obviously when something is in dirt you clean it thoroughly but being cleansed and and neutralized in such a way that then you would clean it and then you would kosher it um as I mentioned I think Jackie brought this up last class You have to clean something and set it aside for 24 hours before you can kosher it. So that's the actual reason, I think, why people have separate dishes for Passover. It's not because the koshering is so difficult. It's because it actually takes two days. To do the koshering because you have to clean, you have to wait, then you kosher. So you can't all of a sudden be koshering the day of Passover, uh, technically. I mean, if you all do that, don't, don't worry. I'm not here to tell you that you're doing something wrong, but technically you're not supposed to kosher on the same day that you are, that you're cleaning the utensils to then, to then use them. You're supposed to kind of nullify them and then be able to kosher them. Uh, The dirt thing is probably
4: also 24 hours, right? That's what I'm saying. I think how long it's supposed to be in the dirt.
0: Yeah, I think the dirt thing is A, not necessary, and B, I think it was just a way of people putting things aside um, such that they would then wash them and then kosher them. That's my guess. It's just a nullification tool that it was going into something that was par of, so to speak, um, and then you would clean it and kosher it. Okay, Tyrell. Um, Two
4: things on the dirt, and I would have put it in the chat, but unfortunately today I can't use either hand well enough to type, but uh-huh. um, do you think the dirt could be two reasons? One is the um, idea that earth to earth, dust to dust, so it starts a new cycle of a being or ends a cycle, so there's the symbolic and the other's the practical. I think it was Diane was talking about where things freeze and where things don't, but even if you were
0: a poor Jew, you were more likely to have access to dirt. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that just like people put mud on their face because they think it's good for their pores. Like there is a certain aspect of dirt being cleansing. Um, And so though we wouldn't stick something in dirt and then eat it, obviously, like I do think that there is a nullifying element of dirt um I've never heard the dust to dust piece I mean we're talking about forks so I'm not sure I'm not, I mean, sure. I just,
4: I, I'm not saying it just I was thinking about it why why and then yeah. I thought there might be some symbolic valence because yeah. you burying ends a life cycle so maybe burying ended the life yeah. cycle of when the koshering what went off. So you get to start again. Who
0: knows? It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful interpretation and it's not a stretch. And potentially that's where it came from. I, I, I really don't know. I didn't grow up with it. So the first time I ever heard about the dirt business, um, I, I was surprised to hear about it and I've never, there's much that I have never learned, but I've never come across in law, the idea of putting things in dirt. (laughs) So I don't, it's possible that it's in there somewhere and I've just never learned it. Um, but I, I don't have any basis for where it comes from. Uh, Norm and Rachel. My mother. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: When when we learned about how to do this, or at least when I learned how to do this, uh, a table fork or knife is not, was not a problem. You boil water, you drop the knife in, it's complete, or the fork, it's completely immersed, and eventually when it's cool enough to take it out, or using tongues, you take it out, and it's kosher. Yeah. And the burial wasn't necessary. Burial was connected to china or earthenware. <laughs> hmm. and with that, if you buried it, It was as if it was part of the earth. And if you took it out a year later, it was like new. Wow. (coughs) And we have a closet where every, it used to be that there was always something in there, but where we would have something, you know, there'd be a little piece of paper attached or sitting in it or on it saying kosher on such and such a date so we'd know you know kosher on the second day of Hanukkah or kosher after Pesach of wow. such a year. and every now and then when we would be going in there why we'd be able to take some of the things out and begin using them because it was as if they were buried if they'd been set aside for a year.
3: Well Norm's talking about for example if something, if something earthenware got in the wrong dishwasher and yeah. it was technically trafed because it had been in the wrong dishwasher. We've done that, but also and here's where I think you know the, the issue of why do we have separate stuff for PESA that speaks very loudly because how else are you ever gonna use all your inherited good uh-huh. Elegant stuff that your ancestors brought from God knows where. <laughs> if you don't use them, it pays
0: and
3: And uh, for that, if we inherited um, dishes that we knew were previously used, but we don't necessarily know how or by whom. Mm-hmm. We leave it packed up for a year. I don't literally go outside and stick it in the dirt. Right. But it's set aside for a year. And then when we take it out, it's as if I just bought it. Yeah. And then assign it to. Right, regular, melted, flashing, whatever.
0: Yeah. So we're gonna to get to earthenware later. It's very complicated. Um, the 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 long and the short of it is that earthenware cannot be koshered, and so part of what Norm is describing might be a go around in terms of setting it aside for a year because it cannot be dunked in water or hit to fire or anything like that. Um, because of the way that the, that the material is made, it's too porous, but at, to Rachel's point, and then, um, and then I'll ask Joanna to share her question. Um, the, when I was, I think finishing up rabbinical school, a really good family friend of ours who has since passed away wanted to give me her china. Her child didn't want it. And she saw me and my siblings like um, like grandkids. And she hadn't used the china, she said, in probably 20 years, but she didn't have a kosher home. And so I really wanted to take the china because A, I wanted to make her feel like she was giving me the china, but I wasn't really sure that I was going to be able to use it. Um, and, and also when you're a final year in rabbinical school, you're wondering, great, where do I put this? (laughs) And when will I ever as a 27 year old or whatever use, you know, use my china? Um, but anyway, very nice. And I really wanted to be able to say yes to the offer. So I called Rabbi Alexander and I gave him kind of all of the parameters for for what this was, told him the story, told him what the china was, told him it hadn't been used in 20 years, but definitely had been used with like bacon. I mean, like full entree when it was being used um, and probably was used once or twice. I mean, she said that it was very rarely used, but definitely had been used and definitely not with, you know, matzah braai. So... I said, can I use this? Is this are these utensils that I can or the plates that I can use, the utensils I wasn't so worried about? And he said, It's been sitting for 20 years. And I said, Yeah, that's what she seems to be saying. And he said, if it's been sitting for one year, you're fine. Um, and and that's high trafe, right? We're talking bacon on a plate in a rabbi's house. <laughs> so so we're, we're talking like high stakes here, and, and part, of, part of what this whole class is supposed to be is a way for us to really look at the sources and to recognize that some of the stipulations that we put upon ourselves and upon our Jewish community are set in place so that we don't make mistakes. But if we know the rules of certain things, there are actually many more leniencies around specifically kosher that we might not we might not know. So there is this idea, and we'll get to it later, of setting something aside for 24 hours and something that can be koshered, so like a glass plate or a metal bowl, setting it aside for 24 hours, and it's as if it's nullified by the next day. So Monday night. You're eating macaroni and cheese on a glass plate. You leave it alone until Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. You can have, I don't know, salami and eggs on that same plate. Now, how come? Because a glass plate can be washed and be nullified in between use. So you're probably thinking, okay, well, then why doesn't everybody just have glass plates and, you know, have one side of their kitchen be for the plates that were just used and the other side of the kitchen for the 24 hour plates that haven't been used. And the the reason is for convenience, right? Who has the time to make sure, oh, that's the plate that looks exactly like all the other plates that I used on Monday that I can't use on Tuesday, but I can use on Wednesday. No one has the time for that. And so people get separate plates because they want the convenience. They want the ease of being able to separate But when I'm talking to couples, and this happens all the time, where they don't have space, that happened a lot in Northern California, where they don't have space or they don't have the finances to have multiple sets of things, I say, buy glass, put them in two different cupboards they might look the same and worse comes to worse. You make a mistake, but in today's day and age, you're not going to be using the same plate for any, every meal anyway. That's like the minimum that you can do and you're probably doing it. Okay. So the 24 hour thing is for something that can be koshered and the year long, um, wait is for something that, that cannot be koshered, but becomes nullified after a period of time. Um, so that's kind of like a, a precursor to all the things we're, we're going to get over the over time, uh, yes. Or go vegetarian and 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 enjoy the ease, uh, Joanna.
3: So interestingly, um, I happen to be on a small screen, so when you were sharing text, yeah, it was too small on my screen. So I actually opened it in a separate window. Great. And the very next section in Avodah Zara talks about some rabbi who thrusted a knife in the ground 10 times to kosher it. So I know it's different than leaving it in the dirt, but it seems to me to be perhaps something heading in the direction. Totally.
0: Yeah. Again, I think dirt is being used in these these instances as like a nullification tool in the way in which we would use leaving something alone and then washing it and then submerging it. But yeah, thank you for, thank you for bringing that up. Had I just scrolled a little bit further, um, we would have, we would have gotten that, but yeah. And I think as we're even hearing just between two people in the same class, right. There are clearly different reasons that things were being put in dirt. Um, and it's possible that it came from nowhere and it's possible that it came from there and different people decided that they were going to take it to different lengths. Okay. Diana and Bob.
2: Yeah, one other thing about the knife in particular, one of the paragraphs you slid by very quickly was saying something about, but knives only have to be cleaned and polished to be made kosher. Uh, Only
0: Only have to be or have to be cleaned and polished first?
2: No, that's it. They do not have to be, they don't have to be heated. Yeah. They have to be maybe dunked. I mean, for Passover, I dunk all my stainless steel knives and call them pesadic, but Um, Yeah. But in truth, the other thing that we learned somewhere was that things that are used cold, Mm -hmm. like knives, okay, Uh, unless you're cutting hot meat with them, if you're just cutting veggies on a board, you know, there's really not much of an issue in terms of cost fruit anyhow. Um,
0: So so that's mostly true. And the the part of the Gemara that you're referring to, I just looked at it, it, um, is referring to knives only used with cold things. But just like all things that need to be made complicated by Jews, cold things refer to like a tomato or an egg or, you know, a head of lettuce, but do not refer to things like a jalapeno or garlic or an onion, which you would say, well, wait a second, those things are never hot. I mean, I guess they're not never hot, but they're not usually hot when you're cutting them, but they are what's called harif. And the idea of something that's spicy or harif is that it also transfers um, taste. And, and therefore, that needs to be a, a meat knife needs to be used or a milk knife needs to be used to cut those things because it's as if you're cutting through a steak or cutting through a slice of cheese. Um, so you're right, the cold things. And that's why some people who keep kosher, who only eat at kosher restaurants, or I should say hechshered restaurants, that they will eat at sushi restaurants, even that are not kosher. Um, because the way in which the, the, the process of which sushi is made, of which I am not a sushi chef. Um, but if you are eating, Sushi that is not baked or fried, you are eating something that is being cut cold every time. And even if that knife goes from shrimp into ahi tuna, um, the it is wiped off and cleaned even just with water in such a way that it's not transferable. Cold is not transferable, even from high trafe to something that would be kosher. So there are certain people that will not go into an unhectured sushi restaurant, which is totally their prerogative. And there are certain people who will eat at unhectured sushi restaurants and only eat that which would be made cold. So like, a tuna roll or something that is very pure in terms of its, um, craft. Uh, and then there are other people that will only eat at, um, at hexured sushi restaurants. So you, you have, you have the gamut, but it's the other reason that people will go to vegan restaurants, right? That even if, even in, in that case, even if things are being made hot, they're being made in such a way that, um, that the items that are being touched are not, contaminated, so to speak, uh, based on transfer. Yeah, Michael.
2: What you said makes sense uh, in a sushi restaurant, except for the fact that often rolls have wasabi, which is a spicy horseradish. So why wouldn't that transfer? Yeah. That's so,
0: uh, so you're, you're right. That's why I said that they would have, some people will just only eat like pure, you know, like salmon rolls or cucumber. Well, cucumber, I guess you could eat anywhere. Um, but tuna rolls or, you know, things that don't have like not a spicy tuna roll, right? What that has something mixed into it. Um, but that, that type of, of harif, you're right, would make some people not eat it in an unhectured sushi restaurant. And other people would feel like it's so, minuscule in terms of the in terms of the mixture that it's okay uh so just it depends on people's comfort um but you're right that the things that are harif like horseradish would be seen as transferable if it's going to be between between two different things and some would say transferable cold so that's a very low transfer rate versus transferable hot um okay yeah leon
1: uh you just reminded me when i was uh in the army in israel yeah uh, i once complained to the rabbi yeah. that uh i saw some things that were not all, all that kosher in the morning e- meal and he said well it's it's okay everything is cold <laughs> okay so it was using the same argument that you were yeah. during yeah. the year long uh I don't remember where I got it from, but I was told that after a year things become like wood. That was a term that was used. Like wood?
0: Oh, interesting. Because yeah. wood is... But
1: I don't remember where it came from. It's been fifty yeah. years since I've been in, uh, you know, in yeshiva. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's I... it's possible. It's possible that. Because wood now is actually a very difficult thing to kosher, depending on how it's manufactured. It's possible, like, back in the day that it wasn't as... Um,
1: a piece of wood is what pro- it's...
0: Right, 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 like a nullified, like a, like a, a parve item, so to speak, right. right? Something that doesn't have any status. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um Right. I mean, the funny thing, obviously, to what Leon is saying is that you you can't have like cold sausage or cold bacon. Right. It doesn't work if the tray is cold. Right. It only works if the item that you're eating is kosher and cold. um, But you can't have like a kosher cheeseburger. That's not how this works. Uh, Though funny.
1: A funny workaround. My son, when he was in uh, Santa Barbara College, he was the only three kids that were keeping kosher in the entire place. And so I used to take him out to sushi restaurants all the time. Yeah.
0: Because
1: of yeah. that reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that many, many people who keep a pretty strict, um, pretty strict kosher still feel pretty comfortable making decisions, but eating in unhectured uh, sushi restaurants. Okay. We're going to do one safe because we're on a lot of really great tangents, but let's just do one in this topic and then we'll get to, we'll get to it again next week. So this is the first Saif of 121. It says, right, is that correct? Oh no, I went to the, I'm back on the Gemara. Hold on one second, here we go. Okay, so one who takes used vessels from an idol worshiper the way in which the idol worshiper used them, this is how he koshers them. This is how a person then koshers them. So if the idol worshiper was using a cup as a cup, that's how you then know to kosher. it. it was being used as a cup. So use it as a cup. Don't use it as a plate, right? Or if a pot was being used as a pot and not being used as... I don't know, a cauldron for bathing. It was a really bad example, but use it the way that it's being used by the person who gives it to you, by the artisan potentially, um, so that you know how to kosher it. Therefore, one who takes an old, a used old vessel, which was used for cold, such as cups and plates and others like that, you wash them and you must scrub them well in water at the time of washing in order to remove and polish the the is it's saying esor like it's something that's that's forbidden to you basically anything that's on it that that you are trying to get rid of so it doesn't have to be that it's you know high trafe, but just something that you don't want on that item anymore which is on them and afterwards you rinse them in water and you dip them in a mikvah so this is still we're talking about under the category of toiveling, but it's getting into this place of you need to to prepare them such that you would then then use them, right? You would you are you are creating for yourself a vessel in the way that it's supposed to be used by koshering it in a way that it's supposed to be used. Um, the Rama then says there are places where the custom is to permit placing wine in in these vessels and barrels where the wood are smeared with fat. So presumably fat that, you know, would make a thing um, besari would make a thing uh, flesh. Well, the plates of wood are smeared with fat because the nature of the wine is to separate itself from the fat. And the fat congeals and stands by itself and does not touch the wine at all. I think he just wanted to add a fact. I don't think this has really anything to do with anything except for that you would want to wipe down the barrel before you submerge it in water because you're cautioning a barrel. I'm not really sure if that makes any sense. But that's what he's trying to get at, that if there's something on it that you do not want for the item to then be used, you then wash it off. Make sure that it is clean and then you can submerge it. Um, if you're, if you're going to twivel it and same thing, if you're going to be koshering the item, you need to wash it fully and then be able to kosher it. Um, okay. That's the only safe we're going to do today, but there was one question here. Um, Rabbi Troni tells a story about some exalted rabbi eating ice cream out of a Fleshig bowl and the rabbi insisted that it was permissible because it was cold. Yeah. I mean, unless the person ate hot, um, meat chullant out of that bowl 10 minutes before the ice cream is used in that bowl. He's not wrong, right? Unless it was a ceramic bowl that, that, that bowl can be used for both things as long as you're waiting 24 hours in between. It's just a matter of what did they wait for 24 hours in between? Um, was the item, was the item cold beforehand? You know, who knows? There's a lot of questions to ask there, but. But a great story that if all the things were in order just shows you that learning the halakha makes it a little bit more lenient to be able to follow. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tba. LA.org.